Hey, what's up, everybody? It is me, Sarah G, with The Smack, and I am back. And it seems like there ain't nothing more tread upon in this industry than the fiduciary standard. So I've got a lively crew here today, and we're going to be talking about does the fiduciary standard really matter? Why is it important? And let's get into it. So we've got Kelly Nielsen, Advice Only Planner at Brava Financial. Hey, Kelly, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. Scott Jacobs of EP Wealth. Hey, Scott. Hey, thank you. Jay Adavahara, Dr. Jay Adavahara, excuse me, por favor, an independent life insurance professional. Hey, Jay. Hey, Sarah. Knut Rostad, president of the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Lee, a lecturer at Cal State Polytech University. Hey, Sarah. And last but not least, Scott Salaski, my homeboy in the streets. Scott, hello, and thank you for being here. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> so, Canute, go ahead, just take it away. Well, thank you, Sarah. Um, I will start with what is uh, a fiduciary, but I, I want to frame it in, um, I think that it's most useful if we speak in terms of the, in terms and language that the average client could actually understand what we're saying. Um, and I and I I respect academics. I respect the the work they do, but sometimes I'm not sure it's as useful for our purposes here. So with that with that opening, I will I'll suggest that a, uh, a a fiduciary is is one who gives uh, advice in <clears throat> trust and confidence that is uh, um, truly in the best interest of the the client or the beneficiary um, and is based on uh, competence and loyalty, period, end of sentence. Um, go on to the next question, another 30 seconds. The reason that it matters is that our entire economy, uh, the world of in investing uh, is based on being able to trust who we are listening to. And if that is gone, then, um, then we're in big. Pro then we've got a big problem. So, from a macro level, that's why it matters. And I will pause now and hand the uh, baton back to Sarah. All right. So the first question in our debate is, what is a fiduciary? Let's come to some kind of an understanding as a group, if possible. Who wants to take it? So I'll jump in and say that um, I, I hear the term best interest often in conjunction with fiduciary standard when it comes to investments. Uh, best interest to me is table stakes. The way I define a fiduciary is uh, a person who has an undivided loyalty to the person that they're serving. That eliminates conflicts of interest. I think a fiduciary that has a conflict of interest can't really operate as a fiduciary. And I know that that is um, not the standard in the industry, but that's my standard. They wouldn't have a comment on that. So actual conflicts of interest or apparent conflicts of interest? All of the above. There are inherent conflicts of interest and then there are chosen conflicts of interest. Inherent cool. conflicts of interest are things like uh, a CEO who has a fiduciary duty to both the corporation, but also to themselves. There's no reason that they have to, you know, subvert their interests. So they have to balance that. We choose to have conflicts of interest in this industry. 
And that's why to me, there is so much confusion because there is a way to provide advice and counsel to an investor without having a conflict of interest through either product or AUM or what have you. So we're choosing conflicts of interest. There's nothing that isn't unavoidable when it comes to financial uh, advice. But clients may perceive a conflict of interest that isn't really there. And that could negatively well, give me an example. Engagement. Um, what would that client, look like? Yeah. So if the client, I don't know, if the client thinks that because you also have somebody else as a client um, simultaneously that they may think that's a conflict of interest. If the client believes that because you, let's say somehow they learn that you're invested, you yourself and your own account is in, are invested in something. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, a particular fund, a particular opportunity. They may view that as a conflict of interest. I mean, there's really up to the client's imagination, right? There, it's just that there's different. No, Stephen, you look it's at not. Law, I mean, there there are conflicts, and then there are not conflicts. So I, I'm I guess I, what I'm saying is like it's very easy, in my estimation, to determine what a conflict of interest. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm a member of a community where an advisor said, "Hey, I have a client I'm, who's who's a friend of mine, but also in a client relationship." I need a car. She has a, has a car and she's willing to sell it to me at a significant discount. That is a conflict of interest. And there was a lot of discussion about whether it was material or not. That's a conflict of interest. There's no way to skate around that. Now, if the way a client perceives the way someone is doing business may be a conflict, I don't think that that necessarily rises to it. But I think we can absolutely define with clarity and precision what a conflict of interest is. Maybe. Um, I used to teach and train uh, professional fiduciaries in California, and they're not giving investment advice. They're actually making decisions for clients, uh, conservators, powers of attorney, agents, and so on. And so one of the things is that that we would teach them is there are actual conflicts of interest, and then there are, uh, there are apparent or perceived or could be perceived conflicts of interest. Example that's not investment related is you're the conservator or guardian, and you are driving your client uh, in their car to their doctor's appointments and back. And um, along the way, you decide to stop off quickly and um, shop for yourself, or you know that you've been having car trouble. They have tools in their garage that you can use to fix your own car. So you borrow those tools and so on. That may not be a conflict of interest, but to the public, they may view that as a conflict of interest. That's why I don't think it's so clear cut necessarily. Because you can have perceived conflicts of interests that don't, as you said, don't rise to the actual conflict of interest level. Well, I think that that's probably a conflict of interest. Those two examples, I don't see those as not necessarily con you're using someone's someone else's property for your benefit. Um, this gets into the whole concept of rationalization, which is another slippery slope. But and and the other thing too is I, I just want to be clear that I do think that there are. There are fiduciary standards that other industries and other practitioners have to uphold. My focus for today's conversation is on financial advisors, right? So I appreciate the fact that you're talking about a, a completely different uh, practice area. But I would still say that those people are conflicted. Yeah, uh, Sarah, I, I'm in. Uh, I'm in Kelly's camp. I, I think that just like a doctor or an attorney. It's doing what's in the best interest of that family you're serving or that client you're serving. 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year long, with no exception. Period. And there's no gray areas okay, so here. Here's the problem. Uh, everybody in the whole world, everyone in this whole darn industry is calling themselves a fiduciary. Like I'm on my LinkedIn debates and I got insurance agents like that's all they do. All they do is sell insurance. And they're sitting there telling me that they're insurance fiduciaries and they're fiduciaries because they do the right thing for the client by selling insurance. I got insurance agents saying in these debates that you're not a fiduciary if you don't sell insurance. If you do not sell insurance, then you cannot be rightfully calling yourself a fiduciary. What do you think of this? Like, how do, I mean, I don't think if, unless we get past that, what is a fiduciary? Can an insurance agent be a fiduciary? I don't think we're getting anywhere in this industry. Well, I think that's kind of the point, right? Because the longer we stay mired in this conversation and the longer that people uh, lack clarity, then the system can operate the way it's always operated. There really isn't going to be significant innovation. So I almost feel like often we're, we uh, are a circular firing squad in this business where everybody sort of stands in a circle and, and aims at each other. I do think that there is some merit in having a, a, a way to educate the public to say, go deeper than just, I'm a fiduciary, right? Because um, it's like truth and labeling. What is that? You can label anything you want, but if you have a series of questions to really hone in on what are these areas that are so crucial to supporting a fiduciary standard, then we can get there. For instance, you know, one of the things that I've encouraged people to, to um, do when they're looking at hiring an advisor is find out how that person's compensated, follow the money. The money will tell you a lot about what you need to know. And by the way, but then, but, AUM, is, but then they say the advisor will say the dual registered ones, right? They can say, well, I'm a fiduciary when I'm acting as an advisor. And, and, and that's all they'll say. Like they might not say, but I also get paid by commissions. I get paid by commissions or I get paid by fees. Which one would you like? Oh, well, I'd like to get paid by fees. Okay, well, I'm a fiduciary. So, so that's a good point, Sarah. And, and at the same time, it's interesting that the insurance people you just alluded to are the ones that are saying I'm a fiduciary. I still run into people on a, on a monthly basis that I bought an annuity and I didn't pay anything for it. Or uh, I'm not sure how long it's good for. Like the, the explanation's not there. The transparency's not there. The disclosure's not there. And it's it's just, it's the wild west. So of all the people to go out there and put a, 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 a something up saying that they're a fiduciary, I find it difficult to believe that that's the genre, the insurance folks that are, are putting it out there. So so I have a question. Obviously, you know, um, and I'm the only insurance agent in this, in this group, right? And uh, that's fine. And I, I come from a very different background. I have been a consumer and it's just that the path I've taken is such where I didn't want to be an agent. I ended up being an agent accidentally, right? And it's so much because, and, and the reason for that is because I was shopping for an insurance for myself as a consumer. And in the process, I spoke to seven or eight different agents from eight different companies, evaluated over 50 different designs, I, which I don't think any consumer would do. They didn't have that kind of time to do it, but I'm just being analytical. I, I just kind of dug my heels into it. 
And it came, came to a point where the agents told me I knew a lot more about it than them. That's when it hit me. Well, why the hell am I on this side of the table? I need to go to the other side and do what is right, right? So my philosophy is don't just sit on the sidelines and point things around. Get down there and clean the garbage. If you can't do that, you have no freaking right to talk about it. It's as simple as that. Can insurance, I'm not saying you have to sell insurance. I'm not saying that you are a fiduciary only if you sell an insurance. The problem I have is I see a lot of you in the advisor saying, oh, you don't need a whole life. You don't need a cash value life insurance. Just buy a term. Well, let's understand the concept of insurance. Why is a term cheap? It's cheap in the early years because insurance companies, companies know very well that a person is going to die in the later stages of life. The probability of them dying, if you just pull up the actuarial tables, is less than 1% until about age 75. So what exactly are you paying for? Yep. So when you actually need insurance, you don't have an insurance. And when you don't need it, you're buying an insurance. Does that logically make sense? It didn't yep. to me as a consumer, right? But, but okay, then like, if, you now like, take, if you now take the insurance vehicle and design properly, look at it in a, in a holistic concept, right? Factor in the taxation, factor in the fact that, okay, it could be a good substitute for a bond. I'm not saying it is a good substitute for a stock. And I'm not saying everyone to put a money into an insurance product only forget about stocks. No, it's all about understanding the client needs, doing what is best. And this is where it gets very relative, right? Because an advisor, a few only advisor might say, oh, best is invest in the market. You don't need a whole life or you don't need a cash value life insurance. Well, if you sell a life insurance to a person who doesn't have a cash flow, I agree. That's something brutally wrong. Okay, but That's where I think there's a lot of gray area that goes there. Jay, I think you, you made a, an excellent lecture here, and I say that in the positive sense, but I think that most of it has nothing to do with the immediate issue at hand to me that there's somebody who gets compensated to sell a product, are they per se uh, a fiduciary on the face of it? Can they be a fiduciary? And, and you know, I, I, start off, I start off with Kelly. I think she's got it pretty darn well, but she's got the classical sense. And what I mean by the classical sense is you go back to, and this is not a matter of being experts in law, read three and a half pages from the Supreme Court in 1963 and bingo, there you got it right there. You know, they, I know they're old white men, but you know, they really, really had it right in terms of the nature of a fiduciary relationship. And Kelly has done the best job that I can see so far in sort of articulating that. So Jay, I've got no question that, that you are smarter than most other insurance salesman that's part of what i'm hearing but frankly that's not really not the point to me it's not the point well to me, I, I think it's about taking a practical approach right i mean would i like to sell, not about a would, what, would, would i would i like to help clients without getting compensated on on a commission basis absolutely i would like to but the problem is there is an insurance law against rebating what the hell yeah, am no, I but, but, Jay, so, that's true, but that's, that's really yeah. not I, that's beyond my control really it's not the no, point. No, and it's and not it's the not. point to say that that if you don't sell insurance, you know what, you know one way or the other. The the point is the is the larger point of you know can someone whose livelihood depends on selling a product, and in a case of insurance, often in 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 uh, in levels of opaqueness that 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 would make us blush, can that person be a fiduciary? And the answer is no, no. So I I you know. Uh, so I think we're off the point in terms of what the central questions here that Sarah laid out. Well, 
Agree, but the thing is, the while we were discussing the point, the whole the example of insurance was brought in, so obviously I have to jump in for that, right? Because it's a practical challenge that we're dealing with, and you cannot no, no, deal with abstract challenge. But the point is, the point is that you know, just you know, nobody's m most people who understand even a tiny bit don't seriously take the notion that insurance agents are fiduciaries. Now, okay, okay, I get it. They're out there and they're saying that. And people are falling for it. And that's the reality that, that we live in. But, you know, I think that this discussion would be more useful if we focused on the 7% of advisors and brokers that we estimate actually are real fiduciaries. And the other 93% can't make it. And I'm using Cyrilli's numbers better, you know, for, for better or worse. So here's I, what I would say, right? What is your solution for insurance? Well, well, you know, talk about well, it. I mean, it's part, you know, we're not, we, the 7% are not going to persuade or advocate or lobby the insurance industry down. That's not going to happen. So you have so, no solution. You have no, no solution. Oh, no, excuse me. But you're me. willing to sit, no, sit and comment on no, it. No, Part of the solution is what actually Kelly already said. In addition to using the fiduciary word, describe what it means in a way that Main Street uh, investors can understand. That's what we've tried to do. We've boiled it down to three pages. This is what we believe the best advisors, planners who are real fee-only fiduciaries, this is what they do. And we've done it in plain terms. And we've done it in a way that that we think that, that normal people can understand. So that's part of our contribution to this. But again, in terms of this broader conversation, I think in part we need to ignore the 93% out there and focus on what we as the well, 7 I think you should do. just have the seven person and have a discussion where all of you are aligned because then that there's no scope for improvement, right? I mean, you, you just don't want to look at the other side because here I am as a consumer giving you the perspective of how broken down this industry is and you don't want to listen to that. You well, just don't want to listen to that. I don't know that. I don't, no, know I, that. I, I don't think that's, that's, a, that's yeah, I don't think that's a fair characterization. I, I think that the whole uh, discussion is around the use of this word and the purpose for the use. So for instance, if there are insurance agents out there who are staking a claim and saying that they're a fiduciary, then they're obviously doing that because they believe that that confers some kind of value in terms of marketing or, or attractiveness. Now it's completely wrong because again, if you start with the standard of undivided loyalty, meaning there is no conflict. I don't get paid by a product. I get paid by you to provide advice and counsel that is solely in your best interest. Then the 97% conflicts out really quickly. You've got one question and it eliminates most. Now, Jay, that doesn't mean that an insurance agent is bad. And that doesn't mean in my estimation that an insurance agent can't make excellent recommendations in the best interest of a client, but it does not mean that they're a fiduciary. And so really what we're talking about is we're talking about the uh, misguided uh, misappropriation. Maybe it's not misguided. It's intentional. The misappropriation of this word for marketing and advertising. And that's really what we need to talk about. Because fiduciaries aren't doing that? Well, th that to me is, a, is an interesting question because my perception is that there are a lot of uh, RIAs, frankly, and there are groups that have, that have either said directly or implied that it really doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't matter anymore. They're following the lead from the SEC. 
They're following the lead in part, and I don't want to. I don't want to uh, get off on this one in part from CFP board, which has just done some some awful things in my view, and in part from Michael Kitsis, who 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 he skits up on his on his uh, stump there and says how immaterial uh, uh, calling yourself a fiduciary is. So you know it's it's also internally. And I think it's a, and I think it's a result of the 15 years that the SEC and the, and the broker dealers have done a masterful job at, of changing how we think, changing how I should say most people think about what fiduciary is and why it matters. Um, so I think that's uh, that's that's part of the reality of, the, of what we're dealing with. Yeah, that, that's unmitigated commitment to the status quo is what that is. All right. So now. But the point that I hear against this from the other side is they say, okay, fine, I'm not a fiduciary. What does it matter? I still do a good job. To imply that people who aren't fiduciaries aren't as good at being financial advisors, that the care is not as high is wrong. That's what these folks say. So what do you think about that? Scott Jacobs, you had a great point on this on the last debate. I think when you say I do a good job, that's also like saying what I do is suitable. And I think that's a really mediocre standard of care. And so I think about, and I just talked about this earlier before we got on this call, I don't generally bring in new relationships from other RIAs. I just don't. They're all coming from the broker dealers. And a lot of that is centered around these expense ratios that could run one, two or more percent. And I see it all the time. And so you could say you're doing a good job, but how do you justify the client spending an extra 10 grand in expenses? And the RAs generally don't operate that way. It's really in the broker dealer model. And I think if you're going to do what's in the best interest of the client, you've got to look at all that stuff. And I think it's an afterthought in the broker dealer world. It just is. But RAs charging AUM fees is fine. They're not no, costing it's the not. client tons of money when you look at the future value in retirement in the retirement account? AUM is a conflict of interest. Bottom line, if you understand where AUM came from, then you understand it's a commission. Now there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I, I, I would believe, I think that if we look around, there's, we probably find a whole lot of RIAs that still charge AUM fees, right? That call themselves. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. They say that they're commission free. I'm, to, I'm right. saying they're absolutely completely wrong. That I'd just like to jump in and make a sort of a, a differentiation. Um, and to me, in terms of how RIAs who charge AUMs actually deliver and communicate what they do, I, I think there are RIAs who are as open and transparent about their all, all in fees in dollars as the best flat fee, fixed fee folks. There are those that do that. And I think I think that mitigates a, a lot of the legitimate concern. However, I think of our, our also RIs in two other buckets: uh, those that are very uh, vague about what their financial planning is that is included in their in their fee. I you know I think that's uh, that's the, that's just as bad as the broker dealers and those that just throw two million dollars into a uh, uh, into an ETF portfolio and charge. You know, charge one percent. I think that's indefensible. If, at you know, at, at best. So anyway, I just I, I I agree. I agree with that assessment. Um, I would characterize flat fee advisors, people who are charging transparently, but happen to be taking it out of an account 
through an investment portfolio, that's not AUM. AUM to yeah, me yeah. is that sort of arbitrary percentage based on whatever scale. And if you look back historically, AUM really in that in this world didn't exist until May of 1975 when uh, commissions on stocks were deregulated. May day of 1975, E.F. Hutton was the pioneer in AUM. They created a wrap fee account because why? They realized that if people didn't trade on those buy and hold accounts, they were not going to make any money. And that fee compression that came from that deregulation in 1975, which brought us Schwab and Fidelity and E-Trade and all of the, the platforms that we have right now, the fee on that EF Hutton account was 3%. And you were getting guidance and counsel from your professional on what you should do with your account. So AUM is a commission. And yet you've got an entire generation of people who have no idea about that origin story, have no idea that they're commission based because they have been told that they're fee only because of the way this industry has, has operated. So AUM is a commission. And disclosing it does, and, and as well as all this other stuff doesn't matter, correct? You would agree with that? Absolutely, because again, it's yeah. a conflict of interest, right? Well, well, right. If your client, if if I'm an AUM person, right, and I'm managing a $5 million account and a client comes in and says, I'm taking half of it, and I'm going to buy a commercial property. Are you kidding me? I'm taking a 50% pay cut and I'm supposed to advise in your best interest. You can't do it. You might be able to overcome it. You might have better angels that are willing to, to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, you have a conflict of interest. You do not sit on the same side of the table with a client. And by the way, you know, so did Judas. I mean. Yeah, disclosing it doesn't get rid of it. No, well, but, but here, let me just add one more. I mean, a, a dimension to that. Oh, I listen, I, I will lead the parade to say that disclosure usually fails miserably. However, I, I think there is a however there that actually is, is relevant. And that is when it comes to fees and expenses, I think investors are more focused on that than, you know, talk about, you know, uh, uh, disclosing conflicts. You know, that that's that's virtually worthless per se. But when it talk but what it does come out of fees and expenses and and so I come to this point and you know I'm and 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 I've moved towards the sort of the, the fixed fee view, but I'm but I'm not as I'm not where you guys are right now on it. If there is true and real and complete transparency and the Smiths know what they paid in total all in costs last year, you know, that is a scenario which is a which in my view still comes, it comes close to the flat fee fixed fee. Now, you know, Kelly, in terms of, you know, yeah, should I take $2 million out and buy it and buy this commercial property? Well, of course it's a conflict of interest. And, you know, I, I maybe, you know, I'm, uh, I, I think there are those that will, that will say those in the RIA world that will say that it is a conflict of interest. But if somebody has got $5 million in an account and can't figure out for themselves that, that nature of the conflict of interest, you know, then that then 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 I get lost in that a little bit. But um, well, but 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 and I hear what you're saying. I get it. But again, to be a fiduciary means that it's up to us to step up and disclose that. It's it's not a buyer be beware caveat. No, agree, agree, right? Agree. So no, no, if you're no, actually going to call yourself a fiduciary, you better step up and say, "I have a conflict." Well, well exactly. And better yet, not have point, it at all. You know, if someone's got five million dollars. Uh, you know, uh, w with a AUM advisor, 
I, I guess my built-in assumption, uh, and they know the basis of the relationship, and they know that the base, the, you know, the BPs they're paying, and that the effect it's going to have. But yes, someone should absolutely say it's a conflict. Um, absolutely, and you know, and 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 to this point, as I've said elsewhere, I think that one of the reasons why the flat fee. Uh, 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 folks are doing so well is because of the level of transparency. You know, you can go on the website. These are the services. These, this is the fee. Period. End of sentence. And people say I, that. You know what they say though. People say that there is a conflict of interest with the flat fee as well. Of course. Once you get paid your flat fee, what's the incentive? Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Well, you know, but you know, you know, but then we start going down a. You know, we start threading a needle. How, whatever thing you want to say, but you know, but 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 this really does get back to the classical view, which I think Kelly was uh, articulating, and it goes back to those who who uh, who who drafted the Investment Advisors Act. They you know uh, they knew that conflicts of interest could not be eliminated. I mean, they're actually very sophisticated in their writing and and, and understanding this, <laughs> but they also said, getting to this point, that you know that uh, yeah that, that uh, you know. Uh, Yes, a flat fee or a single uh, fee up front uh, is is op is much better than than the than the alternative, and so they made that distinction. But they also understood that you know that you know the the subconscious issues around the nature of a relationship, and you know, and again, this was written in 1940, and they, and they really were fairly sophisticated about how they thought about conflicts. But anyway, um, so. and and to your point. Uh, I, Knut, I think that the industry has evolved, right? So in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it may have been difficult to have unconflicted advice. It's not difficult anymore. And the industry has not migrated there. And you've got people who, again, are invested in a certain way of doing business and want to call it fiduciary. And we're just hitting a point where that is now starting to fall apart because you can choose your conflicts. It's like a choose your own adventure, choose your own conflicts, but then you don't get to use the fiduciary label. You can't have it both ways, in my opinion. Well, I think on a practical level, I think you're absolutely right. But as I think everybody knows around this around this call on a, on a legal level, of course, you can have a conflict. And of course, and, and it is a matter of how you deal with the conflict. But I but I don't want to go there in a sense, because that just fuzzies the issue. But on a practical, you know, higher level. You know, I think you're I think you're absolutely right that, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, if you're choosing to have conflicts, then then, you know, you ought to go out and sell insurance. Oh, I'm sorry, Jay, I shouldn't say that. Um, but um, anyway, that's I guess that's why I'm looking at it. Oh, I wonder if the fiduciary camp would the seven percent camp would be better off. This is something I've thought about. I'm wondering if it would, if it would be better off if they if fiduciaries um do not place themselves in competition with people who aren't fiduciaries and sort of value laden the term fiduciary does that make sense so instead of saying well i'm a fiduciary therefore i'm better instead just say look you need to have someone in your corner that's a fiduciary you're going to have all these other people too in your financial life but you need to have that one person who is fully committed to you and i'm that person to me that scene it's just it's very different it's different roles and i fill this role I'm on this side of the table with you and everyone else, they have their right place around the table or on the other side of the table, but it's on the other side of the table. I just, I wonder if that would be a better approach 
because I think all too often fiduciaries are using, they're just reversing the marketing tactics, right? And saying, well, I'm a fiduciary and therefore I'm better than non-fiduciaries. They're just putting themselves in conflict. That's the wrong term. They're putting themselves in competition with non-fiduciaries. And I, and I wonder if that's really the best approach. But, but on a practical basis, isn't it a quote unquote sort of net, uh, 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 either necessary or in, impossible to avoid, uh, you know, to have this to have this conflict uh, that you're that you're saying that we should try to get rid of. I mean, I think I, I think it's baked into our. I think it's baked into the industry because you have you still have remnants of of like um, OSJs. That's sorry, just trying to think of the of the acronym. Um, long time ago, I was trying to partner with companies. Um, by bringing things to the table that they couldn't do, that their broker-dealer wouldn't let them do. Most of them broker-dealers wouldn't let them do. But it's a winner-take-all system. So everyone just views it as, well, you only have one person, fiduciary or not. And I just think that's the wrong approach. But I do think I, I, I do think that it's, it's a holdover, right? It's a remnant of the past, which is just winner-take-all. There's only room for one person, one, one person giving recommendations slash advice. And that's what it is. Um, I hope that we move away from it, though. So, so, Stephen, it's a good point you bring up, but here's the other part to it, right? So we have looked at fiduciary only in the context of conflict of interest. But there are other things that, you know, uh, that was mentioned, which is competence, right? And what is to say that the person you're hiring as your fiduciary is competent enough? Because the way I have in, in my conversations with other fiduciary fee-only advisors, when I talk to them about life insurance, I can tell you that 95% of them don't understand the mechanics of it. Sure. It's as simple yeah. as that. So for me, okay, you tell yourself, you tell me that you're fiduciary based on conflict of interest. Now, should we define a fiduciary based on competence as a separate title then? Because if you don't understand something and you're giving me advice on that, how am I supposed to trust you on that? Well, well but I think is... a lot of times they oh, don't sorry, even know that they shouldn't be trusted. Yeah. Well, I don't, I, and I also think to go back to Stephen's point about having a, a team at the table. So, Jay, to your to your point about it, it's this sounds very either or. So, I don't if if when I serve a client as a fiduciary, I recognize that they need estate planning, or I recognize that they need insurance. And I go out to that professional, whether it be an attorney or a life insurance agent, and I collaborate with that professional to make sure that whatever's implemented for the client is in their best interest. So I don't think it is, I, I do think that we need to somehow finesse this label more effectively on behalf of consumers than we have done because it has been very self-serving and uh saying i'm a fiduciary and to your, so i'm better than everybody else and i do think that that's again very misleading yeah, um, yeah. and i think you know and and this is me as an observer right i'm nothing against you know the advisors i mean the basic question and i look at it from a consumer standpoint right I come from a different industry where I have been in, in a multidisciplinary team. And to me, it's all about teamwork. And here I enter the space and I see advisors or professionals beating down other professionals. And to me, that is very non-professional, right? It, it Sometimes I just feel like puking at this whole thing. Um, and like I said- Wait until we're finished recording. Me too, Jay. <laughs> no, it is a truth. It is a truth. I mean, I I- 
you know, I I don't want to you know um, hide the truth. This is this is the reality of it, right? Let's let's just face it. Yeah, but we uh, find it disgusting. It's disgusting some of the things these people say. I mean, it is. I mean, I've seen both on both sides of the table. In fact, um, just yesterday I saw a LinkedIn post on how a fee-only advisor trashes a trashes a fee-based advisor. Really? I mean, you really want to get down to that point in a public forum? I mean, what does this tell you not only about the industry, but also about you as a professional putting down another professional? How many times have you seen a doctor putting down another doctor? So I the, the comment that I have about that is you've got a systemic issue and then you have the personal issues, right? And the more that we look at each other and point the finger and go, nah, 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 the, the more likely nothing will ever change because Jay, what you're tapping into is a system of doing business that has always um, supported the number one producer. It's all based on GDC and you're at the million dollar top of the table. That's a system, um, you know, and so it's going to take a while for people to begin to disengage but I can just speak from my experience. The best way to serve a client is with a team and with having those people who have very deep expertise in certain areas. And if not everybody is wanting to step up and call themselves a fiduciary, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Some of the most um, competent and extraordinary practitioners probably wouldn't call themselves fiduciaries, but that doesn't mean that they're not... Um, you know, that, that they don't deserve a seat at the table. So I do think this whole idea of being exclusionary, um, you know, for some kind of hot take LinkedIn post is, is really counterproductive. Kelly, let me, that's the let problem me, I have. And that's uh, the problem I have. Well, you know, um, yes, you're correct. I, I think, or it's, it's, I put it this way, it's important to recognize the degree to which uh, parts of the industry are driven by, uh, you know, the, uh, the sales goals. So that's what I hear hear you saying now. But you know, another part separate from that, to which you know, which if it were not the same, if it were not like this, I would think of the the notion of looking at someone who's selling in the context of a broker dealer very differently. And that context has to do with the opacity. And you know, my favorite my favorite example is Ameriprise. They take fifteen pages in their ADV to describe how they get paid. Now. What the hell is a is a someone supposed to do with those fifteen pages? What are they seriously? What are they supposed to do? So you know, uh, yes, you could. Yes, we. <coughs> uh, yes, we shouldn't. Um, you know, uh, beat up on people. But you know, uh, to the extent that the broker dealer community is still built around being opaque, I don't know how you get around it. And you know, I I believe there are a lot of good people trying to do the right thing within broker dealers. But I say that, you know, there's a very good chance they're not allowed to do the right thing or it's very, very difficult to do the right thing. So I don't know <coughs> how you how you get around that. But, you know, I, but I think your larger point about having different special specialties around the table. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, my perception is that's where a lot of the RIA community is. I can't I can't quantify it or anything like that, but that's where they are because they recognize that. And sure, you know, you know let's have an insurance agent. Who is, uh, who is whose business is to sell insurance at the table, but uh, but uh, that's to me a separate issue than whether you know this issue of who is 
who is rightly, correctly, appropriately called a fiduciary. That's, that's to me, at least a separate issue. Well, I think probably not, no, because everything is tied. It's, we can't, you know, we, we can't separate the issues because everything just goes hand in hand. And that's the well, problem. Well, everything is tied. But, you know, you know, uh, many of us have very good relationships with who, with people who sell product and they think a great deal of them. So that you know, so I, you know, I, I guess I'm having a hard time thinking, you know, uh, what is disrespectful about looking at the guy at the hardware store who is giving me advice on lots of different things on, you know, going at, at the hardware store. I don't view him differently because I don't view him as a fiduciary. Frankly, I mean, I don't view him lesser because I don't view him as a, as a fiduciary. But so, you know, I don't I don't know why that's that's so difficult here to be able to sort of apply the same thing. We know a, people who sell products that we respect and we trust. Part of that is because we believe they're telling us the truth and there's a certain amount of transparency, I think. So I, I think it has to do with the way fiduciary is marketed, too. Right. It's it's been looked at at least the way it's been uh, marketed is it's this nice label that you need to have or else you can't you know nobody else work with anyone else who doesn't have this title right so that's where people are grabbing for it well and, yes but so it, it, a lot of it has to do with marketing well yes <laughs> yes yes it does yes yes it and, does and you know to be honest i think marketing can be very ugly sometimes sometimes the truth is never said it's only hidden well, you know, uh, yes, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I guess to my point, I think of a paper from Consumer Federation of America, Jay uh, Stephen, probably this probably rings a bell about six or seven years ago. They did a paper uh, showing how on the outside, the broker dealers continuously talked about a trusted relationship while in legal uh, battles, they fight tooth and nail to be considered a salesman. So, you know, you know, there we go. Um, and so um that's uh, that's a hard one to overcome i think uh scott Zalaski, why are you so quiet i'm going to be less aggressive these days and be patient and listen <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just taking it all in so I, I think kind of my opinion on it is, is it's interesting listening to you know, everybody talk about it because we're talking about it from a professional standpoint and, and how we're interpreting what the fiduciary standard is. And, you know, this is a small little group. Look at the whole industry. Nobody can agree on a lot of the terms we use, whether it's fiduciary or other things. And then how does the consumer even have a fighting chance to even figure out what a fiduciary is, much less other terms that are out there. So in the sense that Jay just talked about, I actually agree with what you're saying that I think it is unfortunately, and I don't know how we got to this point, but it is all down to the term being used for marketing purposes. And I guess in my experience, probably in the last 20 plus years, and you know, don't quote me on this number, but probably in less than 5% of the people that I've spoken with in 20 plus years, uh, whether they're clients or prospective clients, uh, have ever asked about fiduciary in any context. Mm. And the ones that have tend to be people that oh, the one number one didn't become clients for one reason or another. And they kind of have this shopping list that they're supposed to ask a, a bunch of questions to different people that they interview. And then they just become confused and indecisive and can't make any decisions because this is what the industry's told them they need to do in interviewing advisors. And I think by default, you know, Knut, you're throwing out numbers of like, you know, 7% actually are fiduciaries. I don't know what the right numbers are. Let's say that is the right number. 
the 7% generally are not the ones that are out there talking about that. It's the other 93% that are using it for marketing purposes, watering the term down and confusing basically the average consumer out there. So from my perspective, I, I believe in the fiduciary standard. I think every advisor should be a fiduciary, whether you're a broker dealer or an RAA, it's almost impossible to do that in the broker dealer world because of the environment you're in. Um, Knut, you made a statement of, you know, sometimes there's good people on the broker dealer side that just want to do the right thing. Well, in my opinion, if they want to do the right thing, then get out of the broker dealer world. There's enough opportunity to do that these days. I mean, it's not like we were 20 years ago where, yeah. you know, the, the tools and the systems and, and the support was there and you needed to sort of stay there to, to have, you know, good quality uh, infrastructure to support yeah. your yeah. clients. Yeah. But today, anybody can go out there and do this. And if you don't have the experience, join a small group, join a small RIA, or, you know, you get with somebody that just did it recently or something. But I, I think that the problem is, is just the consumer is just sort of confused by this industry. And I don't know that RIAs did that. I think it all stems back to the broker dealer industry because it still represents a huge market for advice or they, the consumers think it's advice and it's not yeah. uh, in this day and age. And until I guess the RIA space, it's a small portion still can agree on these terminologies and, and how they're applied and how they're used. And it's almost kind of useless to use them, even though I believe in them. Well, yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not waiting for anybody to decide. I have my definition and, and I get asked whether I'm a fiduciary all the time by prospective clients huh. and whether they know what that means or not. I step in and I say, let me give you my definition of fiduciary. And I tell them what it is. I operate in your best interest with an undivided loyalty. There is no win-win. There's only win because my job is to serve you and do it in that manner. I don't sell product. I don't manage money. You pay me a fair compensation for the advice that I give you. The other thing that I'll sometimes share with them is that as a client, you have no fiduciary loyalty to yourself. You are not your own fiduciary. You're not. You have no duty uh, to act in any manner that is in your best interest. I think, But I do. So it's like Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> so I'm your Jiminy Cricket. You want to jump out of a plane? I'm going to tell you not to, but if you want to, go ahead. Go skydiving. Not in your best interest, but knock yourself out. That's something that people really don't understand. So, Kelly, if you're a spouse, you have a fiduciary loyalty to your spouse. You have a fiduciary loyalty to your child, but you don't have to serve yourself in your best in, in your own best interest. You don't. It's a, it's a very good point, Kelly, that you brought up. The only thing that I can see is that if we tell this to the client, it's now the psychology is going to kick in, right? They're going to end up being defensive. I think that's the practical part of it. And that's where, you know, you you have to kind of balance, you know, and that's, it, this has been one of the things. Yes, I understand the importance of regulations. And I've seen this in my previous experience as well. And you can take it to extremes. And anytime you take it to extremes, it isn't going to work. And that's where it's about finding that middle ground at that point. That, uh, it's interesting to hear the comments here because actually, in some ways, they actually reflect where the SEC is at right now. And what I mean by that is, the you know, I we made a big stink when the SEC basically said you could not put the fact you're a fiduciary on your CRS form. And the and you know the SEC wouldn't speak to me directly, but indirectly they said, "Oh, Canoe, it's not such a big deal. Nobody reads it, and if they read it, they don't understand it." 
but the but what the SEC did say in in actually in very few words, which was unusual. I think somebody regrets that because they were very clear. Is that uh, essentially that it's only being used for marketing, and so it's going to confuse people. And so, but you know, uh, so this is sort of where we are right here. It seems in a way that it's uh, that that's where it is. So the fact that we reflect the SEC, which I think reflects the the interests of Merrill Lynch, that upset that sort of concerns me a little bit because I don't think Merrill Lynch has our best interests at heart. I mean, there's a, a couple large RIAs out there still to this day. They'll talk publicly whether they're being interviewed by the media or any other things and talk about how they have such a great process and they put clients through this elaborate planning process and it's a requirement before you come on and so on and so forth. But then you read their ADV that the clients get and it says, if clients want planning, we'll offer planning to them. And it's not just one or two. This is becoming sort of a trend. And, and I've seen this as RIAs continue to become bigger and bigger and bigger, they become... They, they may have been doing some of that in the early stages and they get away from that. So what duties do they have to notify their clients that they're not offering what they offered earlier on or that they're not offering what they're saying publicly? And again, blog posts or interviews or journalist uh, you know, write-ups or whatnot. And I think to me, that's just as much of being a fiduciary. If, if you're out there publicly saying that you know, you're doing all of this stuff for a client, but then you read the ADV and it's like, well, this is all optional and not every client's getting the same stuff. Is it the client's responsibility to, to read that and, and know that you're not doing that stuff? Because again, you're supposed to be looking out in the client's best interest and providing what is in their best interest. So to me, that's not, but again, it's outside of compensation, but I guess indirectly they get a benefit by doing that because they're doing less work. So it all comes back to economics. Yeah, it's not just. Oh, sorry, God. I, I was going to ask: Is this just a wolf dressed as a sheep? Right? <laughs> you know, broker dealers now calling you know dressed as RIAs and now doing the same thing. Just to some for... extent, I think that's right, Jay. As people as RIAs, I mean, I, I've been doing this twenty plus years, and I've seen RIAs come and go, merge and and grow and start up. Even since I've been in the business, and it's like at the end of the day, it all begins to sort of take that same path. As as you're a solo practitioner. Most of the time in the IRA space, what I've seen is that people try to do the right thing for clients, you know, sometimes not, but most of the time. But at the same time, as they get larger, they they get away from that and they got to you know put systems in place and hire people and do all kinds of stuff of now running a business versus providing advice. And again, there's there's not clear lines of, you know, notifying clients and explaining you know, that we've changed and everything else. And to me, that's all part of the fiduciary. It's, it doesn't end with fees or, you know, some benefit you're getting, you know, on a transaction or something. It's, it's all the, the you know, whole encompassing relationship. If, if something has changed in, in what you're doing, to me, just putting in your ADV is not good enough. Well, it doesn't scale, right? I mean, it's a right. relationship. It's a, it's a relationship mm. that is uh, started in, in trust, like legal trust, you had a fiduciary who was looking out for the interest of a, of a beneficiary. Right. So you can't really scale that effectively. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm not surprised that there's a lot of, uh, disconnect between what the ADV says and what the client's really getting. Well, I guess the and, other question yeah. that I also ask is how many clients actually go through ADVs, right? Oh, very few, yeah. zero. Yeah. Very yeah. few. I can tell you as a consumer, I never looked at one of them. Like I used to get them in mail. I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's like pages after pages after pages. I have no freaking clue, right? And so I think 
even educating the consumer on what to look out for, what are the legal documents? So for instance, insurance contracts, right? How do you read them? Like what, what are the different writers? I mean, give the basic level of knowledge because if we don't give that information, what are they supposed to understand out of it? Who the heck knows what a disability writer is? It's just a freaking term, right? It's a technical term that we understand, but a consumer does probably doesn't understand that. So I think it's kind of going to the basics and telling them what these forms are, what do you need to look out for? What's a red flag? You know, what do you need to see? I think that's probably where we need to start. And ADVs are filtered, right? I mean, it's the the, the information is filtered. So by the time the ADV comes out, you probably had compliance officers looking at it, regulators looking at it, giving feedback. So it's very different than the public relations person of the firm. So I think that's the re- a large reason for the disconnect. And the other, I guess the final thing I'll say is uh, this does raise a lot of interesting questions in terms of scaling up as far as what do you, what do you do when your company becomes so large? And let's say you're not the owner of it. If you're the owner of it, it's, I think, easier because you make all the decisions. But if you're not the owner and your company increases in size at a certain point, does it become untenable to still call yourself a fiduciary and be part of the firm? What if your firm goes public? Well, now you're not in charge anymore, right? Your your shareholders are. So can you be a fiduciary then if your company is publicly traded? A lot of interesting, I guess, future research questions for me anyway, as an academic. So I guess the basic question is, if a firm is focused on its growth, could that be a conflict of interest for the client? Maybe. ABC, client lists, the whole thing, right? I'm ending this now. Everybody, thank you for being here. This was great. Everybody listening to this, if you're a fiduciary, know what the fiduciary standard is and be prepared to defend it. Be prepared to explain what operational standards you are held to that would render a higher standard of care than somebody who's not a fiduciary. That would be my suggestion as to the fiduciary crisis, how to resolve it. Anyways, everybody, thanks for being here. Listeners, please rate, subscribe, and review this show. And we will see you in the next one, folks. Just a reminder that nothing in this podcast can be interpreted as a product insurance or investment recommendation of any sort. Nothing in this podcast can be interpreted as legal or compliance advice. For any recommendations specific to your or your client's personal situations, please consult a consultant, advisor, or attorney.